Welcome to a special edition of BioCentury This Week, the podcast with BioCentury's editorial team. Today, we'll take a look at the week that was in San Francisco, in and around the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, which kicks off Biotech's year. I'm Jeff Cranmer, executive editor of BioCentury, and joining me today are my somewhat weary colleagues, but they definitely got their steps in. Uh, I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. I'm Paul Bananos, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. And Karen Koch-Tusman, Director of Biopharma Intelligence. Okay, well, patchy skies over San Francisco this week. There was a lot of rain. There were some nice sunny days and classical music being played in Union Square. And Selena tells me that there was at least one rainbow. And I think that sums up at least what I was hearing about the sentiment, you know, some optimism, but uh, cautious optimism is perhaps the best word. Simone, what were you hearing out there? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I think uh, all of us are a little exhausted, so bear with our voices today. You know, I had a bunch of meetings with some pharma folks, but also with some CEOs. Focusing in on the CEOs, obviously no names. I really feel this is haves and have-nots. I met CEOs who were pretty optimistic. You know, if they've got money and they're doing well, one of, I asked one of them, you know, what's keeping you up at night? And after well, kind of thinking, they turned and said, you know, last year was difficult. They're like, you know, right now I'm sleeping pretty well, actually. Um, so that was refreshing to hear. But there were some others who are really on fumes. And I heard others sort of say, oh, people say it's better, but it's so difficult to raise money right now, this private money. And I think we have to accept that the reality is not everyone's getting funded. A lot of people in the industry think this is a good thing. There's maybe more scrutiny over what's going to get funded to start with, just a generally higher level of scrutiny. And so, yeah, I think it's haves and have nots. I think for some people, it's going to continue to be quite tough. And for others, if they're doing well, there is money out there. So that's what for me is patchy skies, Jeff. Yeah, one thing that I was hearing from investors, um, at least as far as M&A goes, is that the fourth quarter was great and they expect pharma's appetite for M&A deals to continue and going into the meeting. I mean, one thing that we were watching are these billion dollar plus deals, uh, as we talked about, I think, last week in the third quarter of last year, we saw two billion dollar plus M&A deals. Fourth quarter, we saw nine and kicking this week off, we saw, I think, at least three. Paul was our one colleague uh, who took the bird's eye view for us. He was safely ensconced. Well, there were a few tornadoes around him, but uh, safely ensconced away from the madness around Union Square in Florida. So, Paul, uh, I know you looked at uh, several of these deals. What, what were you seeing? I, I did. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you framed it as haves and have nots because, you know, all of these companies had something that people wanted. There has been appetite for um, late stage products, typically. This, uh, not, not all of these exactly fit that flavor, but um, maybe I can start with what didn't happen. There was not 
a mega deal, something on the order of Bristol buying Celgene that we've seen in the past at, at, at JPM, nor was there um, a kind of bolt-on deal or a higher single-digit, low double-digit billion-dollar deal. I know there was lots of chatter about cytokinetics. They had their data readout in December. Maybe they could have commanded a sum in that range. There was a report Novartis made an approach and maybe backed off afterward. But there were biotechs that have products with clinical data, and they can still command premium prices. That is no different from last year. So, um, you know, we can start with J&J buying Ambrex. That's a 20-year-old company. They paid $2 billion for them. And as we've said before, antibody drug conjugates have been the drivers of lots of larger deals lately. Think of CGen, Immunogen, the licensing deals for Daiichi. This is the latest one, $2 billion. J&J gets a mid to late stage ADC for prostate cancer. It's called ARX 517, targets PSMA, has a chance to be first to market among ADCs with that target. And some other companies have discontinued ADCs with the same target usually because of some kind of toxicity signal. Ambrex believes that it's linker technology that connects the antibody with the payload, gives it more stability, and makes the product differentiated. So that's an asset driving a deal. You know, by the language J&J used in its announcement, I'm sure that they agree that the asset is differentiated, but it may also be a believer in Ambrex's platform. It may not be a situation where they buy it for the asset and discard the rest. You know, they did call out a couple of other products and seem interested in the technology. J&J also made another um, ADC deal, but with Lego Chem a few weeks ago. So they're getting deeper into that area. Um, the early clinical data is promising for Ambrex. They had some data at ESMO in October that, um, you know, seemed to show that the asset is working. Reductions in PSA, circulating tumor DNA, target lesions, the safety looked good, few discontinuations. And all of it adds up to a big turnaround for Ambrex. You know, less than a year and a half ago, the company replaced its CEO, shuffled its priorities to put the prostate cancer program front and center. The company had been threatened with a delisting. They were trading below 50 cents. And uh, they started to rally uh, with some breast cancer data and for a different program that maybe provided some validation for the platform. But um, Ambrex isn't doing that one on their own. The, the $2 billion purchase price was at $28 per share. So that's more than 50 times Ambrex's value just over a year ago. So, you know, not quite a signature deal for JP Morgan, but um, it's really good for the sector to see a comeback like that. What about the other big deals we saw this week, Paul? Well, yeah. So um, on Monday, Merck made a deal for a company, Harpoon Therapeutics. That was also a comeback story. They've got a tri-specific platform that has attracted some attention that company had been trading below $25 million in September, and now the purchase price is $680 million. So another one that um, kind of rose from the ashes and then commanded a, a more than 100% uh, premium. They've got a product uh, that has led to some responses in small cell lung cancer and neuroendocrine tumors. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to say that I really think that this, and there was another one that you'll tell us about, the idea of comeback stories is really important, especially in this environment. Companies need to know that they can turn it around. We've got companies that went from sort of living on fumes, like I was saying before, to finding value, finding an exit. We had a company that was pretty young also, right, Paul? Well, yeah, Harpoon, I think, is about eight or nine years old. It was launched by MPM, and they built a syndicate eventually, went public a couple of years ago. Yeah, the other big deal was... Uh... At the other end of the spectrum, uh, it wasn't a comeback story. It 
it was what 11 weeks from series a to takeout paul what was that deal that's right gsk bought a private company called aeolos they have an asset for asthma um, or at least most global rights they had in license from jungsu henry the uh china-based company and you know vcs put in 245 million dollars in a deal announced in october a series a I don't know what progress was made. They described it as phase two ready at launch and also phase two ready at exit. But um, GSK is paying a billion dollars up front. There's another $400 million in milestones. And evidently they saw enough value to you know, make an offer the, that the syndicate couldn't refuse. They had to get a worthwhile multiple and one assumes that they did. I, I, credit to them, I should name them, Atlas, Bain Capital, Forbion, Sofanova, were the leaders, and then RA Capital was in there too. The CEO, Kurem Farouk, led the company through its short life. Thanks for that, Paul. All right, I want to change gears here. In my meetings with VCs and other investors throughout the week, one indication came up again and again, and that was neurology. That was also at the top of the list in our innovation survey at the end of the year. I think it came in as the number two darling after immunity and inflammation. And I know Selena got her week started early on Sunday at the Sachs Neuroscience Innovation Forum. And then she uh, went around town meeting lots of small neurobiotechs doing really interesting stuff. So Selena, what are you hearing? Well, I think the thing that struck me most this year is that the level of optimism is so high, particularly for neuropsychiatry, where there seems to be this feeling that clinical neuropsychiatry could really start to transform in the next five years. I realize that's a bold prediction. <laughs> and it implies that, you know, progress is already happening rapidly across multiple indications. But as I like reflect on and kind of synthesize all the meetings, panels, dinners, hallway conversations. It's, it is a straightforward conclusion one could draw from these conversations. And even if the timing is incorrect, I think the point is that after a long period of little to or no progress, things are picking up in a way that feel real, you know, based on biology, biomarkers, and leading to momentum. So certainly I won't name them, but there were several investors that I that I said at the forum, who don't usually invest in neuro, um, who when I asked them about it, they're like, well, it's, you know, it's still hard to find the right thing with the right risk profile and clinical plan, but we, we must be here, right? Uh, we can't not be here kind of thing. That's going to be just so important. If neuro can generate a FOMO effect, Selena, if there's a feeling that the biology is advanced, that maybe you know, we've talked often about orthogonal benefits. If maybe some of the technologies that have been developed or even for other indications start to be leveraged there, once you start getting VCs being like, we can't not be here, that's a really good sign for a field. I think so too. I mean, some of this, of course, is comes from data we've seen recently and some big deals, Karuna, Cerebell, you know, and those might be stories of taking a long-standing hypothesis and finally making it work to bring a new mechanism to a dissatisfied and large patient population, you know, but the next wave of innovation is going to be more precise. I think the advent 
of imaging technologies and, you know, initiatives to clinically phenotype much better than before in various ways, including digital ways. And the genetics data out there are allowing finally the kind of unraveling of circuits in the brain that mediate certain symptoms and the biology underlying the function of those circuits so that we can start matching, taking these big populations that are highly heterogeneous and saying, okay, but if you have anhedonia prominent depression or insomnia prominent depression or whatever it is, we have this molecule that was more likely to work for you. And I think that another angle on this that's really important to consider is that very often in these fields where you've got products that are to do superiority trials, to you know show that you're better, going to be sufficiently better than something that is like dirt cheap, right? But on the other hand, if you do have something that's better, it's not going to be hard to persuade physicians. The drugs that are out there are just so limiting or limited for so many patients. And so I think there's a real thirst. And it's not like people sort of feel that they have to do a tremendous amount of physician education for the need or anything. Here, you've got a really thirsty population. It's sort of, I don't know if we're just more aware of it than it was or if the numbers are actually increased, but there's, there's just a massive unmet need. Absolutely. And even though there's drugs available, they have a lot of side effects. Right. You know? So, you know, the muscarinic compounds are going to have a milder side effect profile, but there, there are others. They're not the only ones. There's this lesser known company called Reviva with phase three data that's actually more of a standard antipsychotic mechanism, but a much milder side effect profile. And what that is going to allow is the potential, I think, for combination therapy in addition to just being more attractive to these these patients don't want to be on their drugs. As soon as they feel a little bit better, they tend to go off. Karen, uh, I want to bring you in here. I know you were uh, out and about all week. You attended the big Wuxi event, which has been going on for several years now. I didn't manage to make it to the Wuxi summit. So Karen, I'm really curious what takeaways you got out of that meeting. Well, I had the privilege of moderating one of the panels there on opening up new horizons in cancer with a bunch of different luminary folks across a range of cancer modalities. One of the key takeaways for me from that panel and from other discussions I've been having in one-on-one meetings is the importance of early trials for decision-making and what you measure there and innovating around that. So Crystal Makel, um, professor at Stanford and a co-founder of uh, Lyle and Cargo, putting cell therapies out there for cancer. She talked about the need for not only brutal honesty in your early trials, and she as an academic runs uh, some early trials that generate some pretty, uh, have generated some pretty compelling proof of concept, But she talked about how you can do a lot with a small number of patients and that really the mandate is to validate, did, you know, your mechanistic hypothesis, did what you expected to happen, happen uh, from a mechanistic point of view, and then you can evaluate sort of the efficacy with a more sobering lens. And I, speaking to other people, even outside of the panel, there's a lot of talk about doing the work up front to really design those early trials in such a way that you're going to be able to learn from them. And one key theme was that 
your endpoints in those early trials should be fit for the purpose of decision making about whether to move forward, which is different than regulatory endpoints for phase three. Um, and one striking example of this was a, a conversation I had with the chief medical officer of Verge Genomics. They're really leaning into digital endpoints for their ALS study. They just started um, the proof of concept phase of their phase one uh, for ALS. And these digital endpoints won't be what they submit to FDA if they ever get to a phase three, but it's uh, going to be key for helping them understand if their drug's doing what they think. So that includes voice monitoring and movement monitoring using some interesting um, room sensor stuff. So anyways, the theme uh, that I've been getting across the meeting on stage at the panel and across conversations is that, that science of the early trials and the endpoints. Thanks for that. Karen, let's take a quick break. For more than 20 years, BioEquity Europe has been where CEOs and investors gather to network, partner, and debate critical issues facing the biotech industry. In 2024, BioEquity heads to San Sebastian, Spain, in Basque Country, May 12th to 14th. Join BioCentury, EBD Group, and Regional Host Committee Chair, ECOS Capital, in one of the world's culinary capitals. Don't wait, last year's BioEquity conference sold out. Visit bioequityeurope.com for more information. Okay, we're back, and Karen just gave us the lowdown on the Wuxi Global Forum, and another company with Asia Ties also has an event on the sidelines of JPM, and that is GenScript, which Simone attended. Simone? Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting. I, I want to say that before our panel, there was a talk given by David Liu, which was really bringing together a lot of the technologies in cell and gene therapy, in particular, sort of leaning into gene editing, base editing, prime editing, which we've written a lot about at Biocentury and are going to continue to do. And that was really a, a very interesting presentation that he gave. The panel I moderated talked about cell and gene therapy commercialization, and we had a bunch of CAR T leaders on this panel. And when I talk about commercialization, I mean, the point is that Commercialization obviously starts the day that you get marketing authorization, but everything towards that happens beforehand, right, during development and, in fact, very early on in development. And we've now got sort of six CAR-Ts, four CD19s and two BCMAs, and they've been on the market approved, sorry, and they've been on the market for like six years. So, you know, a lot of the discussion is around what have we learned and how are we using what we've learned into the next generation of CAR-Ts? And the way I think about this field, we've sort of written a little bit about this, is this is a sort of almost like the hard work era. So people now know a lot of the things that need to get fixed. Even before you get to solid tumors, even before you take CAR-Ts into new areas or enable allogeneic, sort of, there's still a lot around manufacturing. There's still a lot of things around distribution and understanding the toxicities and to some degree at the moment the autologous ones are ends of one right because they're so personalized but there's really a lot going on there in vivo CAR-Ts and so on so I think it's going to be very interesting in the next few years I'm not sure that we're going to see massive breakthroughs but I think we're going to see this is the sense that I get from the conversation we're going to see 
incremental advances, but I don't mean that these incremental advances are negligible. I think they're really important, but incremental advances that may not always be splashy headline news. But if you can start to do things like have rapid manufacturing or in vivo CAR-Ts, start to generate positive data, and these things merge, you actually end up moving the whole field forward. So I think that's going to be very interesting. I mean, Selena and I have had a few other conversations. There's no two ways about it. The darlings of the moment are ADCs and maybe by specifics. And parties have to take a little bit of a bronze medal maybe at the moment. Um, but, but there's still a lot of energy and there is so much interest in this. I think it'll also be an interesting year for some clinical testing of hypotheses around ways you can tweak your T cells to make them less exhausted and more STEM-like. Um, I spoke to a couple companies operating in that space. And so that'll be something to stay tuned for because uh, it could be that a, a sort of incremental change in how well the T cells function can make a big impact in terms of durability of responses, for example. And speaking of uh, the CAR-Ts, just to jump back a little bit, of course, Peter Marks had some remarks out this week that CAR-T cancer risk is acceptable, at least for oncology applications. Uh, our colleague Lauren has one story out already on that on biocentury.com, and we'll have another for you next week. Let me just jump in a minute, Jeff, because I want to toot our horn or toot Lauren's horn a little bit. I heard a lot about this, in particular about two stories that Lauren has written on, you know, new data on CAR-Ts, moving those into autoimmunity, into immune indications, which is a very exciting area. She's written two very interesting stories laying out that landscape, and that's obviously an area that we're going to be watching very, very closely and another exciting development in that field. Yeah, definitely there, Simone. Okay, we touched on several of the many meetings that have cropped up on the sidelines of JPM in recent years. Indeed, we attended too many to give them their proper due here. Several of these events, though, focused on innovation in Asia. The CTIC Healthcare Summit on Sunday, the Global IR Pitching Meeting put on by Korea Bio, Sidley, and BioCentury, as well as the Singapore Innovation and Enterprise Startup Showcase. All three of those events were packed, and it's not surprising as it's a time when Western biopharmas are increasingly looking to Asia for innovation. And if those whetted your appetite for the next big meeting coming up on Asia Innovation, it's the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Summit in early March. You can find information on our website. I know Simone and Selena will be there. And so will Taylor Swift. Well, not at our summit, but she'll be doing a multi-day stand in the island Nation, little music, a little biotech. Anytime you get me in the, uh, you know, same paragraph, let alone sentence with Taylor Swift, I think it's going to boost my profile there, Jeff. Thank that you. that is that is my 
My God. Well, let's. And, and I'm expecting her to talk a little bit also about CAR T's and, uh, you know, their potential use in these various indications, don't you? <laughs> I would not put anything past Tay, uh, as I'm told by my 10 year old daughter, to call her. All right. Well, why don't we wrap up with sentiment around the IPO market? We have our public markets preview for 2024 coming out tomorrow. We will dig deep on next week's podcast. The writer of that story, Stephen Hansen, frequent guest on the podcast, he'll join us and really dive into it. I'm curious what the rest of you were hearing. I, you know, One thing that I was hearing from VCs, all eyes on these three companies that have filed to go public, if they perform in the aftermarket, could be really good news for that backlog of companies that have no doubt been wanting to get out. Uh, Selena, what were you hearing out there? And uh, I know you've been talking to Steven a lot about his story. Maybe give yeah, us a little uh, uh, You know, a similar uh, story can be told about follow-ons. Yeah. We've already seen um, the pace of them pick up, new investors getting involved. Not all of them are catalyst-driven. Post-follow-on performances have been pretty good recently. So if that continues, I mean, that usually precedes the comeback of IPOs. So those are all good signs. You know, word on the street is that what happens with interest rates yep. is going to be really important. Like the XBI could still really swing on any change in expectations for a rate falling environment. Yeah. One thing I heard was, you know, the market's priced in six easings, but three might be more likely. And that that sort of thing is going to definitely uh, bring a little volatility throughout the year. But uh, even with that, I, I think, you know, back to what I said at the beginning, cautious optimism uh, it was sort of the mood that, that I was picking up on all week. You know, patchy skies, as Simone likes to say. So let's just hope that uh, that rainbow, if I may be a little corny, is uh, right around the corner. Well, thank you all uh, for joining uh, me to chat about what you got up to this week. I, I know uh, you're all exhausted. It's very energizing, though. There, there was a great buzz at many of the receptions. I think people were really glad to get back in person and meeting. And the weather almost cooperated. So, uh, you know, I think the backdrop of uh, some of the scary weather patterns that we were seeing on the, uh, the East Coast maybe uh, took the wind out of the sails of some of the San Francisco haters. I think San Francisco uh, definitely uh, did us right this week. So Selena, Simone, KTT, and Paul, thanks for joining today. We'll get back to our regular schedule of podcasts coming out early in the week. Tuesday next week, it's a holiday weekend here in the U.S. And then back to Mondays, as always. Thank you for tuning in. And of course, Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for BioCentury this week. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. <laughs>